you don't have a catechism, there are some available down at the table downstairs. Otherwise, you can sort of share and look on with each other. Uh, if you're visiting this morning, welcome. Uh, we are continuing on in the catechism. I'm not going to make you sing with a small group. <laughs> We're continuing on in this discussion of the Lord's Prayer. Um, and we have just finished up the address section, and we're going to continue on with question 169. But let's pray first. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, by our baptism into the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, you turn us from the old life of sin. Grant that we, being reborn to new life in him, may live in righteousness and holiness all our days. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay. There are more to come, I know. Uh, so we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer, and the Lord's Prayer is spoken of here in this catechism as um, the pattern and practice of prayer. Um, what have we said that, that points us to? So pattern first. What's the pattern? What's that? Right. It's more that it gives us something that we can set our prayers on top of and reliably do so. Um, when we speak about the practice of prayer, um, we're saying that there's a lot to repetition, right? I mean, uh, I, it's, it sounds almost like too much to just say it, but doctors and lawyers have practices. Do you know why they call them that? Or nurses have a practice. And every nurse knows why they call it a practice. <laughs> because basically you repeat the same things in your head as you deal with patients or as you deal with clients over and over and over and over and over again until it becomes part of your nature. Um, uh, my mom has, my mom's a nurse and on occasion she would, she'd look at somebody and she'd say, you need to go to the doctor tomorrow. <laughs> Maybe not even tomorrow, go to the emergency room now. <laughs> and they would say, what? <laughs> and she would say, you have heart disease, look at your fingers. And, and it was that simple, uh, because this had been practiced over and over and over again. So the Lord's Prayer is a practice of prayer because it, it, by, by, by repetition and by, um, deeply praying this prayer, um, we learn and, and prayer seeps into our nature. Um, it begins to perfect our nature. So we're going to continue on with this section, with the first petition, Hallowed Be Thy Name. Actually, no, we did that last time, didn't we? Okay. Well, now we're on the second petition. Uh, question 176. What is the second petition? The second petition is, Thy kingdom come. What is the kingdom? The kingdom of God is his reign over all the world and in the hearts of his people through the powerful and effective cooperation of his Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus shows up in Galilee, and what is the message? One of the first things that's proclaimed? The kingdom of God is near, or the kingdom of God has come near you. Um, the disciples are sent out into the homes of people in Galilee with this simple message, the, the kingdom of God has come near you. Um, now, it's interesting that that would be the message in a Jewish context. Why? Well, yeah, all you, you, got, you got several things at play, right? You've got the Roman Empire, which is, um, which is Caesar, who lives a thousand miles away across the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, everybody hates him, 
right? With good cause, right? Because he slaughters lots of your people and crucifies thousands and, you know, all of this. And, and uh, you've just fought a lovely little battle with the Greeks and, you know, the Romans are no better. Um, Caesar's remote. Pilate is near, right? And, and that's another thing altogether. The taxation is high. Um, whatever news uh, the, the Romans bring is bad news. I can guarantee you that. Um, so this idea that there would be a new kingdom proclaimed with good news is certainly an interesting thing. Um, we can say a lot about it. Uh, what about the Jewish king in the, in the area? I say that with a smirk. He's not really Jewish. <laughs> He's a Hasmonean. Uh, and, and he is a puppet of the Roman state. And he had been a puppet of the Greek state before that. Um, and everybody hates the Herods, although they'll never say it. Um, but the Herods are, are a puppet state. Um, they are what uh, will be termed in the ancient world an ethnarch, um, meaning that um, Herod was king of a people, of an ethnicity, of a nation, but not really the king, um, not, not the king of all. Um, and yet Jesus proclaims an everlasting kingdom um, that is a re- both, both a renewal of the Davidic kingdom and also a kingdom that will last forever and be over all people. Um, so when you hear the Christmas readings, which are coming up, listen to that. That what's being proclaimed by the angels to the shepherds is a kingdom for all people. This is good news for all. Um, it's not the kind of good news the Romans bring. Because so, the Romans bring good news and it's like, hey guys, we're going to build an aqueduct. Do you know what that is? Of course you don't, you backwards people. Like, you know, you've never had, you've never had plumbing in your life. And we're going to give it to you. But we're also going to raise your taxes. Isn't that great news? And they literally called this, you know, the Evangelia Romana. You know, like the good news of the Romans. Um, so, so this is to say that, that this good news um, of the kingdom is of our coming reign over all the world. Um, meaning that it will be pervasive throughout creation. And in the hearts of the people, um, which, which is an interesting thing, too, because, you know, uh, we have little glimmers of this, don't we? I mean, have you, did you watch when the royal babies are born? Okay. People standing outside Kensington Palace with, like, you know, their hearts are burning, you know, like, oh, goodness, there's this king. And then everybody forgets about it. Um, and, and not everyone goes crazy about this. Some of you are like, oh, no. We have earthly rulers, don't we? And sometimes we think, oh, yes, yeah, we love the ruler. And then other times, what is it? We hate the ruler. Um, but this is to say that this reign will happen in our hearts, that our wills will be ruled over by this king. Um, and we see that this happens as Christians through the powerful and effective operation of the Holy Spirit. Um, we believe that as Christians, um, not only uh, are we, do we become God's own, but that God, the Holy Spirit, indwells us, um, lives in us, operates in us. Um, and that this is, uh, in a sense, the first fruits of that kingdom. Um, where men and women are made to be uh, partakers in that divine nature uh, by the Holy Spirit. Okay, question 178. When you pray for God's kingdom to come, what do you desire? I pray that the whole creation may enjoy full restoration to its rightful Lord. Um, now, some people might take this answer to mean, yes, 
An end to global warming. Wonderful. Yeah, take that. That's right. Yes, an end to global warming. <laughs> um, what else? An end to deforestation, an end to all of these ecological crises. That's all there. But it's also that we recognize as Christians that creation is fundamentally broken by the fall. Um, to give you an example, uh, if you've ever owned a house or you've ever lived in an apartment and you notice that this doesn't all work the way it's supposed to. Um, our kitchen sink is backed up at our house right now and there's the plumber's coming tomorrow and I'm awaiting good news from him, which probably isn't going to happen. <laughs> but, but it's to say that, that we experience brokenness within creation at a, at a fundamental level, especially within the things that we've made. Um, so, you know, as Christians, we ought not think, oh, well, you know, I'm having trouble with my laptop today, and say, curse you, Steve Jobs, you know, <laughs> if only you'd done better. No, 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 no. Um, there's, there's something broken in the way that the world just works. Life doesn't add up, in other words. And so what we look forward to, and looking forward to this uh, restored uh, creation in God's kingdom, is we look forward to full restoration to uh, creation's rightful Lord. Now, this message in the ancient world was a humdinger of a message. Um, the earliest of Christian creeds is, is simply this. Uh, Jesus is Lord. Um, Jesus is Lord. Um, when Paul writes to the Philippians that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, that's that early, early, early creed coming across. Now, you should know that the Roman creed was something else, which was Caesar is Lord. <laughs> Caesar is Lord of all. Caesar is Lord of creation. Caesar is Lord. Uh, Caesar is a god. Um, a good Roman citizen would sacrifice something before an image of Caesar on an annual basis. Um, Christians, uh, very early on, began to refuse this. And for this, they were, they were usually thrown to the lions. You would refuse this one little grain of incense to be offered before Caesar as a sacrifice. And they'd say, well, it's just a little grain of incense. It's sap that comes out of a tree and dries up. What's the big deal? Just throw it in the pot. You'll be okay. You'll live. Um, and Christians refused because they knew that if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. Um, and I've been reminded of this lately. Uh, you know, you may have seen in the news that a hundred Chinese Christians um, in Chengdu uh, were arrested and put in prison uh, just this past week. And uh, the declaration from one of these pastors is, is worth reading. You should look it up. Um, but it basically says that very thing, that we, we, owe, we owe respect uh, to the government. We owe, we owe love for the government. We owe obedience to the government where, insofar as we're able. Um, but we are members of a new kingdom, and this is, this is the message. Um, and so I think we've lost something, and what I want to say is we've lost um, the subversiveness of the Christian message. We've lost the treasonous aspect of this uh, creed. Um, because what it means is, and what we think is, it, it means this, that try as they might, the federal government of the United States of America is not going to get full restoration of creation. Um, no other government will. 
Um, there's no kind of utopia that will be acceptable to us Christians where we say, oh, we've done it, we finally figured it out. It, it doesn't happen that way. Um, we wait for the restoration of creation to its rightful Lord. Um, in other words, nothing's going to be right until everything in creation is under the Lordship of Jesus. All right, so we clear on that? Okay. How does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom, which was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, was founded in Christ's incarnation, established with his ascension, advances with the fulfilling of the Great Commission, and will be completed when Christ delivers it to God the Father at the end of time. Okay. God's kingdom is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Well, how is it foreshadowed in the Old Testament? Okay, let's think 1 Samuel. Wonderful, wonderful section of scripture. The prophet Samuel sent out to find a king because the people demand a king. All they've had is these judges, these kind of non-Jewish people to rule over them, and they want a king of their own. And what does God say to them? Well, first of all, you're not going to like it, which they don't. Second of all, what? I am your king. I'm your king. I'm the only king you need. Um, There's an understanding that as long as they thirst after kingly rule outside of um, God himself, they'll be disappointed. Is that still true? Yes, of course, it's still true, okay? Um, we, we human beings, we play this out over and over again. We need someone to rule over us that we can trust and love. Now, if we Americans have high expectations of our rulers, Jews have even higher expectations. Because a Jewish king is meant to be not simply a mighty ruler and a warrior, but a poet and a musician and someone who loves the people and someone who is with the people and someone who, uh, who gives mightily to the people, um, one who inspires them, one who speaks to them. The, the king is meant to be a prophet. The king is even meant to be a priest, but never really does a very good job of it. Um, we see glimmers of this, don't we, in David? You know, David puts on priestly garments. He dances before the Ark of the Covenant. Um, he, he writes poetry. All first 50 Psalms of the Psalter are his creation at least, probably more. Um, But he fails, right? How does he fail? Well, I'll I'll leave it to you to read the whole account of Bathsheba and you'll see the failure, right? He he commits murder. He murders one of his own generals. Um, So it's it's a terrible thing. Um, But this kingdom is foreshadowed in that sense, right? We can see, oh, it hasn't yet been fulfilled. Every king is a failure. Um, Some of them worse than others. We were reading in the daily office, uh, like the Chronicles and 1 Kings and 2 Kings and all of this, and you read over and over again, you know, he was was exceedingly wicked in all his doings. (laughs) It's just bad, right? Uh, The kings of of Israel and the kings of Judah are setting up uh, phallic symbols in the temple to be worshipped. They're doing all kinds of nasty things. And even those good kings like Josiah and Hezekiah, they still have their weak points. I mean, these guys were amazing, uh, amazing rulers, but it's still not enough. But God's kingdom, we read, is founded in Christ's incarnation. So over the next few weeks, I love how this coincides, over the next few weeks, this is, these are the themes to be looking out for, right? So all the stories of Christmas are the stories of, of, of God himself being dropped down behind enemy lines in the dark of night 
when everything seems to be going terribly, uh, to save and redeem. Um, this is to say that, that the kingdom is not visible immediately. Um, and this is why we speak an epiphany of epiphanies, right? So you can see the Magi are coming across. And what do the Magi do when they show up at the, at the, at the, in Bethlehem? Why do they go there? Do you remember? They go there not to pay tribute to some foreign king. What do they do? They say, we want, we want to worship him. You see, so he's not just some sort of foreign ruler. He's God who is worthy of worship. So we need to say that the, the kingdom is founded in Christ's incarnation. Um, that's, that's what the Christmas story is about. It's about the revealing of what God has done in his incarnate son. Um, he has, and, and also, lest you think they're boring, uh, read the genealogy at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. Do you know what the message there is? Oh, also read the one in Luke 3. What's the message? Yeah, Jesus is coming from royal blood, more royal than anything that's ever been before. Um, at some point in the return from exile, the Jewish kings become disinherited. Um, and Jesus' lineage, the most important part of that, is not, you know, there's connected to everybody. Of, anybody who's anybody shows up in the lineage. <laughs> but, but it's to say, they were tracking the break. And he is the rightful king. Um, absolutely important that we see that. So he is both uh, the son of David, who reigns forever. This is what the prophets look forward to. Uh, he's also uh, the king that's been foretold. Um, established with his ascension. So founded in his incarnation, established in his ascension. Why do we say established in his ascension? You know what we're talking about when we talk about the ascension. Okay. We talked about this earlier. It's 40 days after Jesus is risen from the dead, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Um, what does it mean to serve at the right hand of the Father? Yeah, the, the right hand is the hand of justice and, um, and redemption and, uh, and every good thing that comes from the king. Uh, in fact, we know that kings would actually issue decrees with their right hand that were good. And if the judgment was harsh, he'd meet it out with the left hand. And the idea was so that the hands are not confused. For Jesus to sit at the right hand of the Father means that he sits uh, at the hand of mercy. Um, he also stands at the right hand of God's power. So the kingdom is established in this way. When Jesus ascends to the Father, he rules over all things from that day forward. Um, it advances with the fulfilling of the Great Commission. We read of the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Um, but it is simply to say that as we go forth with the message of the kingdom as Christians in the world, the kingdom is advancing. So when, when, uh, when you read, and there are wonderful accounts, of the gospel first being preached in a, in a language to a people, this is what's happening. Um, I know that some of you watched that, or saw this in the news, that young man who went out uh, to... Um, to evangelize a small island off the coast of India. And it was scandalous in the, in the world news. It was like, why would somebody do this? And the answer is, I think, put simply, this guy gets it, right? Now, disastrous consequences, but he certainly gets it, that, um, that every nation means every nation. Every people means every people. Uh, and, the, and the kingdom advances as it reaches further and further and further. Um, so that's a, that's a big thing. 
and will be completed when Christ delivers it to God the Father at the end of time. So in Advent, we look forward to the second coming of Jesus, who will come uh, and deliver uh, this universal kingdom to the Father. How do you live in God's kingdom? My kingdom life as a Christian consists of living with joy, hope, and peace as a child of God, a citizen of heaven, and a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, we as Christians, if we were to pull out our, our ID card, our driver's license, or our passport as members of the kingdom, it would say something like this, the child of God or the servant of God, and it would have your name on it. <laughs> it would say, who has been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Um, is an ambassador of Christ um, and is um, a messenger of, of joy, hope, and peace. So something like that. Um, <laughs> and it would be worthless. You couldn't buy beer with it. But, but it's just to say that, that, uh, that, that by the world standards, yes, worthless. Um, but, but gives us so much, uh, so many places to hang our hat. Um, we say that living as a member of a citizen of this kingdom here in the catechism means that we live with joy. Well, what's joy? Does it mean that everything's going to go so swimmingly for us? Like everything's going to be, everything's going to be fine. Not at all. In fact, it means you will suffer probably. More, more, more often than not, you'll suffer. Um, it means we live with hope. Does hope mean believing that things are going to get better? Not at all. <laughs> hope is, as, as Paul calls it, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What does that mean? Do you know why ships drop anchor when they're in harbor? Yeah. When, the winds, when the winds kick up and when the waves kick up, they're, they're, they're grounded um, and they don't get dashed against the rocks in shipwreck. Um, so Christian hope means that we remain steadfast through trials, through adversity, through the winds and the storms. Um, and we don't, we don't lose that um, connection which we have, and we don't lose our faith in the midst of difficulty. Um, and that's something that's, uh, that's uh, a great witness today, um, especially as people are tempted to believe that um, we as Christians will be free from all that suffering, that we won't have those things happen, that we won't get sick, that we won't get cancer, that we won't blah, 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 blah. And it goes on and on and on. What people really need and what, what the witness really needs to be is this, that we remain steadfast and faithful even amidst those sufferings. And peace. So God intends and Jesus intends for his disciples to be people of peace going into the world with a message of peace. Um, and indeed, this kind of is one of the last themes of Advent as it flickers out, which is peace, peace, peace is coming. Um, note what Jesus says. The day of his resurrection, he stands behind locked doors, right? So get this. The disciples have locked the doors to this upper room because they're afraid. They're trying to keep anybody out. Um, and Jesus appears behind the locked doors. How does he do this? Well, he's risen, so he, that, that's, he can do that. Um, and what does he say? He shows them his hands and his feet, and he says, peace be with you. Isn't this amazing? He says, peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father sent me, even so I send you. Um, the, the disciples and, and the apostles are to be on a mission of peace to the world. Um, and that means not only peacemaking, but the proclamation of peace through the gospel. Through the proclamation of the risen Christ. 
Um, which is a powerful message, isn't it? Because here's the message. That when we human beings were warring, and we were warring at war in our members, as Paul puts it, you know, and, and you probably experience this. Well, I hope you do, otherwise you'd be no kind of human being. <laughs> do you experience the war in your members? Right? Romans chapter 7, uh, Paul speaks of this, of this all-out battle going on in his body between the good that he wants and what he, what he just knows he can't do. Um, we experience this distress, don't we? Um, we're, at times we're so worn out because we just can't sleep because we're so worried. Um, peace. God is speaking peace into this. Um, because here's the thing. If we did our absolute worst to God on the cross, I mean, get this straight. There is no more brutal way to kill somebody than to crucify them. It's as brutal as we've ever gotten. And what does God do? Does he say, well, fine then. We're done. Is that the message of Easter? Not at all. Instead, Jesus appears to the disciples. Peace be with you. Even and especially those disciples that sold him out. That's a, that's a big message of peace. We live also as a citizen of heaven. Um, Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. Um, we, uh, we go about this world, um, and we should, uh, grounded in that citizenship. And this is hard for Americans to get, but uh, we as Americans can just go down to the post office and get a, get a passport, and get on a plane, and we can go to literally any country in the world, with the exception of Iran and North Korea. And I'm not kidding about that. The, that's, those are the limits placed on our travel right now. We can go to any place in the world, aside from Iran and North Korea, and we can just get a passport at the airport, we can get a visa at the airport, and we are clear. We can go anywhere we want to go. So this message of citizenship in heaven is rather meaningless to us, because we can go anywhere we want to go. But if you're from Pakistan, or you're from uh, Bulgaria, or you're from, uh, from Ethiopia, your understanding of citizenship means a lot. Uh, this past summer I was in... Um, I was in um, the Palestinian territory in Bethlehem. And you may know this, but the Palestinian territory is surrounded by a very high wall. If you're born in the Palestinian territory, you cannot get a passport. You are a nationless people because you're not considered a citizen by the Israeli state, and the Palestinian territory is not a state. So what do you have? You have nothing. You're growing up in a prison. That's what, that's what the state is of Palestinians in Bethlehem. I'm not making a value judgment about that. I'm just saying that's what's going on. And there are Christians living in, living in Palestinian Bethlehem who have no citizenship. So when they read these texts about citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven, what do you think they hear? They hear, they hear a message of freedom. So that is to say that we, we, we need to get this through our heads, that this message is a message of freedom, of release to the captive, that we have a glorious citizenship that, that a passport simply can't show. Um, and we're to live as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, 
faith and discipleship, I hope I don't need to spell this out for you, but faith and discipleship go, to, go hand in hand. Um, one cannot be a disciple without holding to the faith, and one cannot hold to the faith and say, well, I believe, and not be a disciple. Um, to be a disciple implies that you have bought in wholeheartedly to the faith, and that you're now determined to live by it. Um, you may remember the very first, or the, actually the second answer in the, in the uh, it's actually question 20, it's past the introduction. Actually, question 21. What does belief in the creed signify? Belief in the creed signifies acceptance of God's revealed truth and the intention to live by it. Um, this speaks both to faith and discipleship. Um, disciple essentially means a student. Um, everybody in the ancient world, in, in Judaism especially, knew what a disciple was. What was a disciple? What's that? A follower of a rabbi. Yeah. You, you followed the rabbi around and you hoped that maybe some of his words and his, his influence would rub off on you. Um, if, you were, if you were a 10, 11, 12-year-old boy, the best you could hope for uh, in, in, to grow up in that society was to be taken on by a rabbi, to become a disciple. Um, and you just hoped that some of that would come, would come to you. Here's the thing that we don't like, though. What we don't like is that to be a disciple implies discipline. And we hate that part. <laughs> uh, but what it means is that, that, uh, that we live in faithful obedience to Jesus, um, submitting our will to his, putting, our, putting even our minds in his will, into his hands to be taught. Um, that's what it means to live as a member of God's kingdom. All right. The third petition. What is the third petition? The third petition is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will accomplished in heaven? The heavenly company of angels and perfected believers responds to God in perfect willing obedience and perfect worship. Um, so we know that uh, when we say our Father who art in heaven, we, we believe that God, is, that God lives in a realm which we cannot see. Um, I, I believe the language is uh, that alongside this physical world. Um, so we were mentioning this a couple weeks ago that we don't, we're not referring to up there. Um, we're, we're referring to invisible realm beyond the curtain, as it were, um, and not in the Wizard of Oz sense. Uh, <laughs> more cannot be seen, an unseen reality. Uh, the heavenly company of angels and perfected believers responds to God in perfect, willing obedience and perfect worship. Now, this word perfect is a, is a wonderful word. Um, I like to take it a step further. Remember, Jesus actually uses this word, doesn't he? What does he say? You shall be perfect. We should hear those words and go, oh, no, <laughs> not me. <laughs> I can't be perfect. Um, uh, but uh, if you're any student of philosophy, will know this word in the Greek. It's, it's teleos. Um, it doesn't mean, uh, it doesn't mean, um, well, it doesn't mean without fault, but it's a much bigger meaning. It means perfectly according to its nature and purpose. Um, when we when we study teleology as a as a philosopher, and Rob, I'm sure you have something to say about this. Complete, right? It means to be complete. Um, another another translation that I'd love would be grown up. It's grown up. Um, it's, it lacks nothing. Um, we believe that this is how the will of God is done in heaven. The angels and and all those who've been perfected, the saints, um, respond to God perfectly. They're grown up. They're complete. They lack nothing. 
Um, everything that's needed is there. And they actually will this obedience. Um, they're not automatons. So that's an important thing, too, is that um, the, the, way that, the way that God's will works and being subject to God's will works functionally um, is not by God just sort of picking you up uh, and pulling out your memory card and putting in a new one. So the, the, the memory card of the fall is replaced with a new one that, that has no free will. So we're going to just replace it. Right? Um, I was watching Big Hero 6 with my kids, and there's a scene when one of the robots, you know, they pull a memory card, they put a new one in, and the robot goes from being this sweet little doctor to being a killer. <laughs> um, it's not like that. Um, the saints and the angels actually will obedience. Well, how do we see this? Well, we see it in the perfect human nature of Jesus, don't we? His human nature is not an automatic, uh, willing uh, nature that just wills the Father's will all the time. Um, there's a great debate in theology. You know, does Jesus have his own divine will, or is it different from that of the Father, um, or is it the same as that of the Father, and we believe it's the same as that of the Father, but his human will is not the same as the Father. Um, and yet, this human will continually consents to that of the Father. Um, so we know that, and this is important, we know that a created will can actually respond perfectly to God's will. And this is what we believe happens in heaven. Uh, the wills of the angels, the wills of the saints, correspond perfectly in perfect obedience and perfect worship to God. Where can you find God's will? I find the will of God outlined in the Ten Commandments, learn its fullness from the whole of Scripture, and see it culminate in the law of Christ, which calls for my complete love of God and my neighbor. Okay, so, you know, we often are a little bit funny about this. We say, how can we know the will of God? We're just, we're just ignorant little human beings. Like, what do we know about the will of God? And the answer is, well, quite a lot, actually. Um, not perfectly, but we know enough. Um, we know this. We know that we can, we can see God's will outlined in the Ten Commandments. So we know that it's not God's will that human beings should commit murder. Never. Um, it is absolutely not God's will that we should, that we should lie. Um, it's absolutely not, not God's will uh, that we should, uh, that we should um, worship idols. We learn its fullness from the whole of Scripture. So what does Jesus say about, about these commandments? <laughs> not, not a drop, not one iota will pass away from the law. Um, it's an important thing to keep in mind, and I'll say more about it. Um, but Jesus says that he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to what? Fulfill them perfectly. Um, so we have to keep this in mind that, that uh, there's, there's always a little uh, heretic in us waiting to get out. And one of, my, one of my favorite heresies is Marcionism. And Marcion was a heretic that taught that, that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. That Jesus comes to abolish the law and the prophets, not to fulfill them. And so he went through, like Thomas Jefferson, with a big red marker and just marked out all the scripture he didn't like, which was pretty much the entire Old Testament. And then a good portion of the New Testament, uh, especially including uh, the, favorite, um, the favorite whipping boy of those who would uh, have us see this, uh, the letter of James. Um, I'll let you figure that one out. Uh, but, but it's basically to say that, that, uh, that no, we believe that, that the whole of scripture is fulfilled in Jesus, 
um, who calls us to love God and love our neighbor. We say this every single Sunday. Uh, you know, um, that, that, that on these commandments, to love God and love our neighbor, is, is what the whole law and the whole of the prophets depend. Um, so we see that clearly. I think I got skipped. Okay. Um, this love has to be complete. Um, and we know, and we should know, that uh, a good lot of the time our love is not complete. Yes? <laughs> Have you ever done the right thing grudgingly? Yeah, okay, so you know, you know how that works, right? We, we do all kinds of things that are right, but with the wrong attitude. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see this, that, that, um, that just legal observance is not enough. That complete obedience requires love. Um, and, and love that, that sets aside our own will. Um, that, that is a gift of self. How is God's will accomplished on earth? God's kingdom comes whenever and wherever God's will is done. As the church aims to hallow God's name and seek first his kingdom, it should lead the way in wholehearted obedience to God in Christ, and I should join and support the church in this. Okay. So God's will and this, this outworking of thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven actually is accomplished through Christ's body, the church. Now, this is not something that we modern Christians like to think about because we say, well, surely isn't it the case that whenever we do good things, it all works out? You know, isn't it the case that we can, that we can uh, let's just all work together and, and see good things happen? Um, and yet, here's this wonderful thing which happens that whenever God's will is done, um, God's kingdom comes. And as the church aims to hallow God's name and seek first his kingdom, it should lead the way. I think what often happens is that the church sort of follows along behind. Um, it says, you know, world, where are you going? Well, we want to go there too. And we've, in a sense, lost our nerve, haven't we? We sort of like wonder, well, you know, maybe they know better. Let's go, let's follow them where they're going. No, the church has led the way. Um, if you really want to get a, a schooling in this, go talk to Father Ryan Butler. He'll tell you all about how the church led the way in the abolition of slavery. <laughs> Um, and, a, and a good many other things as well. Um, you know, it used to be that the church led the way. Um, the church has led the way in so many ways, not just the abolition of slavery, but do, do you know what insane asylums were like prior to the church taking an interest in them? They're horrible places, um, full of indignity. Um, the church has led the way. We would not have hospitals were it not for the church. We just wouldn't have them. They wouldn't exist. You know why they wouldn't exist? Who cares? It's that simple. Like, if you're a Roman pagan dying of the plague, or whatever it might be, and you're covered in plague, the Roman ethic actually required that you walk as far away as possible. <laughs> Get out of town. But Christians had a different ethic. They had a different moral, moral uh, conscience. And that moral conscience told them, stay. Love your neighbor. Covered in boils. And you might die. So be it. Because love of God and love of neighbor are the most important things. So we wouldn't have hospitals. Um, there's a whole lot of things we wouldn't have in this world if we're not for the church uh, leading the way in obedience to God in Christ. Our role as members of the church is to join in and support the church in this work. 
Um, I remember some years ago, uh, after Hurricane Katrina hit uh, New Orleans, uh, I was a youth leader, and I'd take youth groups down uh, into uh, New Orleans, and we would muck out houses, you know, and go around with crowbars and have a great time, and, and, and we'd help people out. You know, it was a wonderful thing. And uh, I remember that I was in a bar with another youth leader, and, you know, this is one of the joys of being an Anglican. And we were kind of on break for the afternoon, and I said, let's go get a beer. So we got a beer. And we're sitting in the bar, and, and this bartender said, so what brings you to New Orleans? I said, we're doing some, some work with our youth group, and we brought them down here to do some, uh, to clean out some houses. He says, and he, he got all choked up, and he said, I'll tell you, FEMA was worthless after the hurricane, completely worthless. But you people, you, you Christians and your white vans just have not ceased showing up here. And he was talking about these 15 passenger vans. There's just a slew of them through the city over and over and over again, all, all for years. I mean, this was three years after Katrina hit. And they're still showing up. So the church needs to lead the way, and we need to join in and support this. Um, I think there's this idea that, uh, that you'll do the most good as a kind of lone ranger out doing some special project. Listen, the work that the church is already doing is, believe me, far and away more effective and more capable than anything you can do on your own. Um, so when we, when we put out things like Advent guides and Advent gift stuff, and we say, like, join up with the Kramers and do Advent conspiracy, like, this is amazing stuff. Uh, I can tell you that Jerry and Stacey Kramer can use $30 better than anybody I know on the whole planet. Um, and they will. So there you have it. I'm just saying, you know, Get out there because this is being this is this is faithful work. It's kingdom work, um, and it's and it's essential. What more do you seek in the third petition? In the third petition, I also pray for God to counter the dominion of the world, the flesh, and the devil in my own soul to thwart the plans of wicked people and to extend the kingdom of His grace to others through me. This is going to be our last question or our last answer for this morning. I pray for the work for God to counter the dominion of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We should know this language of the world, the flesh, and the devil because we mention it at every baptism. Um, the Christian is one, and this, by the way, this, this phrase is not, it's not in Scripture. It's always been in the liturgies of the church, especially those of renunciation prior to baptism. So I want to kind of walk you through this. When someone would be baptized in the ancient church, they would stand usually outside of the church. Most churches had their own baptistry. So if you ever go to uh, Italy, you know, you see these incredibly ornate baptistries outside the church. That's where people were baptized, in these uh, repurposed Roman fonts. I mean, it's amazing stuff. Uh, and they would, uh, they would have you face either west or north. And you would utter these renunciations, and you would renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, why would you turn west? Yeah, Christ comes from the east, so this church is not oriented, okay? But you have to kind of check your mind at the door and say, we're facing east when we're sitting in the pews, okay? And the celebrant's facing east, we're all facing east. I know that's new for some of you, but that's how we do it. And you can see in that wonderful uh, painting by one of our parishioners, the rising sun behind Jesus. Do you know why? Why it's there? Because he's coming from the east, um, he comes with the rising sun, and this is actually both depiction of his resurrection and his second coming. It's foreshadowing. So this is the Orient. We're facing east. Okay. Well, Christians understood that if we, if we turn to Christ to face east, then we start off facing west. <laughs> okay. And in some churches, you face north. And the reason you face north was, uh, if you were in Spain, for instance, there was nothing to the west to renounce. 
If you're in Italy, there's nothing to renounce but Spain, um, which they already did. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but, but they were facing the barbarian hordes. Of course, you face your enemy when you, when you face and you, and you renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, so the Christian is one who has renounced these things. Um, and we've turned to Christ in baptism and have, and have become uh, uh, partakers of his kingdom. Uh, that means not only that we have once and never again renounced these things, it means we continually renounce them. And that's why we renew the baptismal vows. Ask, Do you renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, and all empty deceits which draw you away from the love of God? And everyone says, I renounce them. We do it continually. And we do it continually because we need to be reminded that it is, it is in us to turn to Christ, renouncing everything that's not him. We're to turn to the kingdom, renouncing everything that's not there, that's not his. Um, well, how do we renounce the world? the problem today, we're one of the big problems today, is that uh, the Christian life is so indistinct from the way the world operates and the world's values that we've, we don't even know what this looks like. We think, so, so what, is that, what does that mean? Like, does it mean I'm just sort of like everyone else but just a Christian? And the answer is that, um, that uh, we have to renounce um, all that draws us away from, from the love of Christ. Now, you might be able to tell me, this TV show that I watch, it doesn't hurt my relationship with Christ. In fact, it might help it. Okay, fine. But if it hurts it, you are under compulsion to renounce it. Um, my nice car that I drive, that doesn't draw me away from the love of Christ. I'm quite thankful for it. But the moment it becomes an idol to you, you've got to renounce it. And I mean as radical as a Lexusectomy or a BMWectomy, right? Uh, it's to say, cut it off. It's not worth it. The moment it becomes your compelling thing in life, um, that's it. The moment you would hate losing it more than you would hate losing Jesus, it's become the world, um, if it's your world. The flesh. How do we renounce the flesh? Oh my. Go ahead. What's that? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's, that's an important thing to say. The, the flesh is good, according to the Christian world. We're, we're not Gnostics. We don't believe that the flesh is meant to draw us away from God. When we renounce the flesh, what we're doing is we're renouncing the disordinate desires of the flesh. Um, and those can be for several things, right? Comfort. Yeah? Like, you know, I realized some years ago that, that I just... When the hot water heater went out... I realized how much I just love the comfort of a hot shower in the morning. 
and how much I just need to be delivered from that. And so sometimes one of the things I give up in Lent is hot showers. And I take cold showers. And it's, it's, it's delightful at the end of the day because you're like, man, this is great. I'm being relieved of this comfort. It's fine. And then I can go back to taking hot showers and I don't take it for granted. You know, there it is. Um, definitely sex. We know that, right? We think, I am entitled to have all of these pleasures. If I don't have these pleasures, I can't really be a human being. Not a fulfilled one, anyway. Um, food. And it's not all about quantity. Sometimes it's about quality more than it's about quantity. If you don't believe me, go visit a sushi bar in Texas, which I looked down my nose at. It's just the way it is. <laughs> but, but it's just to say, it's a little tiny bite, and we get so fussy about it. Why? Because our flesh cries out for the, for the thing that we must have in order to feel good about things, in order to feel right. Um, this would also uh, mean, and I think we need to say this clearly, that one of the things that we Christians need to be about in our spiritual life, and we'll say a lot about this as we go through the end of the catechism, is we really do need to take on fasting disciplines. And not just from food. Um, fasting is a way of keeping the body and its desires in check. And submitting those desires to God's will. And we not only can fast from food, we can fast from hot showers, we can fast from uh, sleeping on a bed. I had a friend in college who gave up sleeping on a mattress for Lent. Because he'd gone on some mission trip and they'd made him sleep on the floor and he realized how much he had taken this like sleeping in a comfortable bed as, as just a right. Um, so you can fast from anything that you take, from grant, that you take for granted, um, including sex, believe it or not. You can, you, can, you can fast from anything that the flesh desires inordinately. Enjoy that. <laughs> Drop it. Put a shoe in your. Put a rock in your shoe for the day. Um, we must also renounce the devil. And there's a reason this one comes last, and it's not because it's the least. It's because it's the greatest, and the most difficult. Um, I've become very aware lately that um, many people at Christ Church, including myself, have come under immense assault that can be accounted for in no other way than just simply to say what it is, which is that we're under attack of dark, demonic, uh, spiritual forces. Um, and I've noticed this in counseling with people. I've noticed this in pastoral interactions with people. And I can simply say this, that if the problem is a spiritual one, then we're not going to fix it by getting counseling. That might be needed, but we're not going to fix it that way. If the problem is a spiritual one, we're not going to fix it by making more money and hoping that we'll just kind of outlive it. If the problem is a spiritual one, we're not going to fix it by getting better medical care, although we might need it. And I want to encourage you to get better, better medical care. But we have to start to post up um, against the, the, the demonic forces of wickedness which assault us. Um, and that means praying daily for deliverance, um, it means being on your guard, particularly, and I'll offer you this, particularly when you have unaccounted for feelings of, of despair, uh, when you start to believe things that you know in your heart of hearts are false. Is this ringing a bell with anybody? Okay. 
you feel despair, you, you know that things are not true, and yet you are given over to believing them. Um, and when, um, when you begin to, um, to doubt God's goodness, um, I'm very, very much aware of the fact that this is happening in our congregation, um, and I want to encourage you uh, that the fight is over. We are engaged in post-war skirmishes, uh, guerrilla warfare <laughs> against those who just simply won't give up. Uh, they've lost the war, and they're fighting little skirmishes uh, to try to get you to give up. And why would you give up? Look, victory, it's ours. That's what the kingdom's about, do you see? And the demons hate it. They hate it with everything they've got. And they're going to come after you to try to get you to think that that's not the case. That God hasn't really won, that you are done for, and you might as well just give up now. So if you are given to despair and you're given to thinking all kinds of lies, which include that, <laughs> then, then, well, I'll leave you a final story. One of my favorite stories about St. Francis. Uh, St. Francis had a brother who, was, uh, who, had, who had, had a particular demon attached to him, and the brother was in deep despair. And he despaired of everything. He despaired of the conditions in the monastery. He, he despaired of uh, everything. And, and he even despaired of Francis. You know, when you've gotten to the point where you say, Francis, he hates me. Okay, St. Francis? That one, yeah. When you think he hates me, it's pretty clear that you're under some demonic force. So this, this brother, he's telling another monk, he's like, and the, and the, and the other monk says, oh, God, you're under, a, you're under a deep spiritual attack. He says, what do you think I should do? Go to Brother Francis, and he will, he will set you right. And the monk says, he hates me. I can't go talk to him. Finally, the other monk prevails, and this and this lowly brother who's been brought low by this attack meets Francis. And Francis says, my brother, next time that demon starts talking to you, tell him to open his mouth so that you can poop in it. It's my favorite story. Okay. Because, because it is to say that Satan hates to be mocked and hates to be written off as, as, as a, as a, as a, um, well, as a mockery. Um, and we, have been given that ability um, to laugh him off. Um, C.S. Lewis once wrote that, that the problem in dealing with the demonic is either taking it too seriously or not seriously enough. And I think, friends, we're in a point where we're not taking it seriously enough. And we need to start taking it seriously. And the other, the other thing that I give you is, in the daily assault which you and I often face, call upon the protection of the holy angels. It's as simple as saying, Lord, send your angel from heaven to banish uh, all, manner of, all manner of evil from this house, all manner of evil from my life, uh, that I may serve you in perfect freedom. Okay. Because the battle we face is not that. Next, and this will be the very last thing I promise. I've got to go, because um, it's right on time. Uh, is uh, Over the course of the Epiphany season, which starts January 6th, uh, the clergy of Christ Church love to go bless houses during Epiphany. It's a tradition that we've kept alive. And uh, I would encourage you, especially if you've moved into a new home or you have never had your house blessed, to invite one of us, and there are several in you, so there's no excuse for not setting this up.
go get a house blessing scheduled. We will come and we will, we will banish the enemy from your house. Um, and uh, it's a great joy. All right. More, well, we will continue out actually in January. So this is the last session until January. Thank you all.